Hallelujah. Thank you, Candace. Amen. God is good. And all the time. Amen. Family, are we still in the book of Daniel? Anybody daring to be a Daniel? Come on. Daniel chapter 2, if you could turn it with me, please. Daniel chapter 2. I'm so tempted to read all 49 verses. So tempted. But let's start. Let's start from verse 24. Verse 24 and we'll end by 36. Grimble is uh, scheduled to preach on Sunday, uh, coming up, and uh, Grimble, I'm having some reservations <laughs> with uh, Ileana that is here. I'm sure my brother isn't getting much sleep, but you'll be fine. Daniel chapter 2, are we all there? Amen, amen. amen. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation of his dream. Then Arioch quickly went and was brought, uh, sorry, then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king, and thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare whom, the, whom they cannot declare to the king, but the, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That's very key to what we're going to share this morning. So God has revealed the secret to Daniel and has given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar to reveal what will be in the latter days, what will be in the future. Your dream and visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of gold, its chest and arms silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly clay, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and now we'll tell you the interpretation. And then Daniel goes on to give um, Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, and if we could just read that quickly. You, O king, are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom. He's given you power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the, feast, uh, of the field and the birds of the heaven. He has given them into your hand and you have made, he has made you to rule over them all and you are this head of gold. So he tells Nicodem, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But after this, verse 39, 
you shall after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours then another kingdom a third kingdom of bronze which shall be rule over all the earth and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron in as much as the iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like iron that crushes this kingdom will break in pieces and crush all of the others whereas you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron the kingdom shall be divided yet the strength of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay so the kingdom shall partly be strong and partly fragile as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay they shall be mingled with the seed of men but they shall not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay and in the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms and it shall stand forever amen amen god bless to us reading of his word and uh, just as a as a premise to what i want to share this morning uh, i think it's important for us to know that you cannot discover or learn who god is apart from god apart from his participation in other words god can only be known at the point of revelation you don't get to know or learn or figure out who god is apart from him willing to show you who he is and in theology we refer to this as revelation revelation is god unveiling or disclosing himself in other words you can search and try and figure out god until you blew in the face but until he unveils himself and discloses himself he cannot be known this doctrine and understanding of revelation is understood theologically in two terms there's two types of revelation there's general revelation and there is special revelation general revelation refers to how god reveals himself through creation bible tells us in psalm 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of god and the firmament show his handiwork so the heavens the stars the moon uh, the constellations reveal the glory of god they have the fingerprints of god god has left his his glory and he, and a trace of of who he is and his splendor in what is created paul put it this way in romans 1 verse 20 he says for since the beginning of creation the invisible attributes of god have been clearly made known his eternal godhead and power in other words you don't need to have been raised in sunday school or been christian or being religious you just need to look at his creation and know that this is by intentional design we were talking last week uh, not sure who i was talking to i'm getting old <laughs> but i was talking to to someone last week and i said you know what you just need to understand what dna is to understand that there's no way possible through evolution and random selection that this could have been fabricated from nothing because dna is the most sophisticated form of information it's like a library of information and in philosophy um, they have they have a principle of understanding existence in philosophy wherever you see order there must be a mind mind precedes order if you walk into a room and the room is carefully arranged it stands to reason that somebody was in the room and so when we look at creation it's foolish to say that there's no creator and that's why the bible says the fool says in his heart there is no god i mean you look at a computer a vehicle a car and you look at how sophisticated the design is 
Would you be foolish enough to say, no, that, that vehicle just randomly evolved over the ages? And when you study the universe and you study man and you study our DNA and, and, and you look at creation, you can just sit back and marvel and see for yourself that there is an intelligent designer. Because where there's a design, there's a designer. Where there's a creation, there's a creator. And so you can just look at the ant and God can speak to you through the ant and say, you sluggard. Look at that ant, work. Or you can look at the sparrow and see his glory and know that not one of them falls to the ground without his knowledge. Or you can look at the lilies in the valley and the roses that grow in Constantia uh, and know that none of creation is clothed with such splendor. And, and no one is responsible for this but God. Amen. And so he reveals himself through creation. And then there's also what we call special revelation. God does not just reveal himself through creation, he reveals himself through miracles, through signs and wonders. And God has always been a God of signs, wonders and miracles. It's just a big contradiction for me that you can be a Christian, a believer, and, and you know, believe in the resurrection of the dead and not believe in miracles. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah, we offer signs, wonders, and miracles. Every now and again, God manifests and reveals his nature through miracles. And miracles, like John says in his gospel, are signs. They point to the miracle maker. Amen. God reveals himself through prophecy. He reveals himself through scripture. Scripture is our final authority for faith and practice. And God ultimately reveals himself through Christ. Christ is the fullest expression of, of the revelation of God. He reveals himself through the gifts of the Spirit. He reveals himself through our personal experiences with him. When we walk with him, we begin to experience him in special ways. And he reveals himself in dreams. He speaks in dreams. Joel chapter 2. He said, In the last days I will pour my spirit on all flesh and your, and your sons and daughters they will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And, and, and in the last days I honestly believe sincerely that God is going to begin to speak more frequently in dreams. Dreams is a language of the last days. God has always spoken through dreams. The Bible says in Job 33, verse 14 to 16, For God may speak in one way or another, yet man does not perceive. But in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, God speaks in their ears. God frequently spoke through dream language. In the Old Testament, he spoke to Abraham through dreams, to, ja to Jacob in dreams, to Joseph. Joseph was a dream interpreter. He spoke to Daniel in dreams. Pharaoh, he spoke to Pharaoh in dreams. He spoke to Solomon in a dream and he gave and imparted wisdom to Solomon through a dream. We turn to the, Old, to the New Testament and we see God still speaking through dreams. He speaks to Zacharias in a dream and tells him about the son that's going to be born to him. He speaks to Joseph to warn him in a dream and tell him, don't divorce Mary. He speaks to Pilate's wife in a dream as, as Jesus is about to be crucified. He speaks to Ananias the prophet in a dream. Cornelius he speaks to in a dream. He speaks to Peter in a dream to go and minister the gospel to Cornelius. He speaks to Paul in a dream you'll read in 2 Corinthians. He speaks to John on the Isle of Patmos in a series of dreams. God is still speaking in dreams today. And it's important to know that while we highlight the fact that God still speaks to, uh, through dreams. That God doesn't always speak through dreams. So not every dream is a dream from God. Some dreams are just pizza dreams. You know? But when you've had a stressful working day, and your mind's been running active, and your mind in your subconscious or unconscious state just goes crazy, those are what we call natural dreams. How do we know when God is speaking through a dream? 
when the dream has a supernatural mark on it that's how you know when there's details or information in the dream that you would not have known that's given to you in the dream sometimes your spirit confirms and rings out aloud that this is a dream from God when the dream answers a question you've been asking for a long time when the dream gives you wisdom for a situation you've been facing for a long time also when the dream confirms a conversation you've been having with God for a very long time then you will recognize his voice and you'll understand that he's speaking to you through a dream and how God does this is that he bypasses the territory of your conscious mind because we are so busy during the day and, and the days and the weeks and we have no thoughts of God and we have no, no thought of hearing his voice and so sometimes we are privileged and honored for God to bypass our consciousness as a last means to get all of us he bypasses the territory of our consciousness and he gets into the fourth stage of our sleep is called REM sleep somebody's thinking of the music band here on my left <laughs> which means rapid eye movement you get four stages of sleep you get you get that phase stage one where you pass you know I'm sounding like a sleep ex expert you know this coming from someone who don't get much sleep you know and and you move from consciousness into sleep that's the stage one then you get stage two of sleep which is called light sleep no, no dreaming happens in that stage. And then you get what's called deep sleep. Nobody, no way, no how, no dog barking is going to get you out of deep sleep. You know? When you come out of deep sleep, you get REM sleep. That's when your brain prepares almost to wake up. So your brain gets active. And your eyes start moving while they close. That's what they call a rapid eye movement. And your blood pressure rises and your heart rate rises and that's the phase of sleep that you begin to dream at and then you slip out and you wake up that's stage four and that's the place and stage that God begins to speak and imprint a dream on you how do we interpret dreams first thing you need to know is that dreams must never violate or contradict the word of God or the principles of God don't wake up one day after having a dream and say, in the dream I saw I was married to you. <laughs> yeah, I had many friends uh, say, the Lord showed me in a dream, you're my wife. <laughs> and the sister's like, ah, uh, you didn't say that, brother. <laughs> it's also important who the source of the dream is, because some people will come and say, hey, I dreamt at this and I really believe God. And I'm like, brother, I drove past uh, I drove past Florida Net and I saw you <laughs> I drove past that pub down the street and I saw you say, must I really take this piece of information from you <laughs> and as the word of the Lord you know sometimes the imagery associated in the dream can confirm and identify uh, with what God is trying to say to you what is the message in the dream that's a lineup in accordance with the scriptures. And sometimes you get a dream, it's encrypted, and sometimes you need to do two things. You need to ask God and pray what the dream means. You need to pray and before you share the dream with someone else, because people will give you the crazies of interpretations. You need to ask God for yourself, Lord, what is the meaning of this dream? Secondly, you know you need to ask believers, leaders who can be trusted about the meaning of the dream and I've seen and witnessed personally how God speaks to dreams uh, sometimes you know God is speaking through a dream when it's repeated in my life I've had one specific dream four times it played out the exact same way and it happened through my childhood into my adolescence and I had it once into my ad adulthood and it's the craziest of dreams. I don't know if I'm shares to you, but, but it's a dream where I'm Superman and I'm, and I'm flying. But I can never fly past a certain 
a certain height. But there's this wild beast chasing me in the form of a woman. Like just wild, like Tarzan woman. Just chasing me. And every time she tries to, to reach me, she just misses me. And doesn't, I just hit the, the ceiling and I'm falling down the air, chasing her. And there's this intense chase and pursuit of me. I'm not going to give you an interpretation of the dream. <laughs> <laughs> and that dream serves as a warning to me all my life. I'm married to a woman who dreams, the craziest of dreams, you know, and every now and again I have to wonder, is this from God or is this, this from, you know, Warabile, Warabile. <laughs> There's times where Al-Qaeda has come into our room, Boko Haram with machine guns, AK-47, there's been uh, aliens on our wall, you name it, but there were times when she had dreams that served as a warning of certain challenges we would face. Specific detailed dreams. Sometimes even of people who were in danger. And she'd wake up with this, uh, with this dream and she'd say, I'm really concerned about so and so. And she would call him the next day and they would say, how do you know? How do you know? Once uh, a friend of mine, his uh, mother used to dream of snakes on the bed and uh, snakes on the bed is not a good dream and one day the news came out that daddy was very naughty and that dream served to prepare her for what she was about to face in her life and so dreams can carry a message from God but not every dream I'm just sharing with this, I'm sharing this with you, just so that you understand that this is one way that God does speak. Yeah. But don't interpret every dream as a message from God, as a belief. <laughs> Amen. The king dreams. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we have an historical note. From Daniel he says in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that he could not sleep this footnote is important because it tells you if you understand chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends and the Hebrew boys were in training for three years when Nebuchadnezzar conquered and besieged Judah so the fact that Daniel is telling us that this is the second year reign of Nebuchadnezzar tells us that it's possible that by the Babylonian method of counting that Daniel is possibly in his last year of training or he's done with his training. And so when we look at chapter 1 and when we look at Daniel we see you know this atmosphere, and we sense this atmosphere of, of stability, of, 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 of recognition, of security. But when you flip over to chapter 2, the mood and the atmosphere of the palace changes. The mood and the atmosphere of the palace changes because of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. This is a mood of anxiety and an atmosphere of danger and rejection for the wise men in Babylon. And when we get to chapter 2, for the first time in the narrative, Daniel is exposed to danger. He's exposed to a mortal threat. His life is on the line and he's caught in the executioner's dragnet. And so, Getting into chapter 2, we also introduced to the first time that Daniel operates in his gift. In chapter 1, we told that God gave him wisdom and God gave him the skill of learning and understanding and God had given him the gift to interpret dreams. But in chapter 2, we actually see him for the first time exercise that gift and interpret the king's dream. Nowhere in all of scripture 
are we presented with a more comprehensive picture of history. In that time, when King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, it was futuristic. It was a dream of the future. It was a dream that pointed 2,000 years ahead of his time. But when we're standing here reading Daniel chapter 2, we're looking at what was history and what has unfolded the exact way that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. Now, if there's any, any reason to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God, it's the prophetic element of the book. Because what is the probability of that dream coming to pass? Peter Stoner said the probability of seven prophecies of the Bible coming to pass is like, he was American by the way, he's American scientist, he said it's the probability of taking over 100 million banknotes, US dollars, and covering the whole state of Texas. It's a huge state because everything is big in Texas. He says, and you fill up so two meters or two feet deep, those notes, and you mark one of those notes, and you blindfold a man and just throw him anywhere. And if he picks up that banknote that is marked, he has, in a sense, fulfilled all seven prophecies of the Bible. That's the probability of this coming to pass. And so when we look at the scriptures through a prophetic lens, we see that we see that this is the word of God because his prophecies are true and if his prophecies are true then his promises are true and his histories are true and his teachings are true few chapters in the Bible will give you a more decisive understanding of the content of eschatology Whoever wishes to understand the scriptures and God's program for Israel and God's program for the Gentile world and for the end of the ages cannot do so without understanding and looking at Daniel chapter 2. The accounts of Joseph in Genesis 41 in a sense parallels chapter 2. Because when you look at Joseph in the courts of Egypt and when you look at Daniel in the courts of Babylon, you see that both kings, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, had dreams. And both these dreams were disturbing dreams. And God revealed the meaning of both these kings' dreams to them. You see that both Joseph and Daniel were exiles, given into slavery. And we see how God uses both these men to climb the ranks of a foreign kingdom. Both captives, both Daniel and Joseph, demonstrate superior knowledge and faithfulness to God and are seen giving credit and glory to God, both in chapter 41 of Genesis and Daniel chapter 2, verse 13. In both cases, in Genesis chapter 41 and Daniel chapter 2, both men are credited with having the Spirit of God in them. Between Joseph and Daniel, both achieve and reach great political power because of their service. When you get to chapter 2 of Daniel, we presented with what's known as a subgenre, you know. Like in the Gospels, the Gospels are a historical narrative, but then you get a subgenre called parables. Parables are a subgenre. And so in the book of Daniel, it's apocalyptic and it's historical, but there's a subgenre called core tales. Core tales is looked at as a, a form of genre because scripture is filled with core tales, stories of the Hebrews who were in the courts of foreign kings. You think of Esther, you think of Joseph, you think of Daniel. All these 
Hebrews were found in the courts and had to decide for the life and existence of the nation. We think of Nehemiah in the Persian courts before King Artaxerxes. Daniel before the Persian courts as well. And we see how God uses these men and women in the courts of foreign kings to bring about his purposes and establish his kingdom. And so we told in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dramatic dream. This dream so disturbed him that the Bible says he could not get back to sleep. He understood that there was something significant about this dream and he was desperate to know the meaning. He was so desperate to know the meaning that the Bible says that the king gave the command to call all the magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans of his empire to come and tell him the interpretation of his dream. But the only snare and catch was that the king didn't trust his soothsayers or astrologers or wise men. And he was really desperate to know the meaning of the dream. So the task was, don't only give me the interpretation of the dream, but tell me what I dreamt. And that involved an intense debate and conversation between the Chaldeans, astrologers, and King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the Bible says there were three exchanges between the king and between these wise men. The Chaldeans took the lead. They were deemed as more authoritative on the matter. And they replied to the king in the Aramaic language, and that's the section that now leads us into the Aramaic portion of Daniel, which is from chapter 2 to chapter 7. Which thus implies that the message of the dream is for the Gentile world. And so the reference to Aramaic kind of serves as a cue that Daniel is now going to switch languages from Hebrew to Aramaic. And so these wise men, these Chaldeans, try to negotiate with the king. They tell him this is an impossible feat. No king has ever asked a wise man to, to not only interpret a dream, but to give the actual dream. And in verse 10, they make a statement. And they tell the king, that there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. And no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such a thing from an astrologer or child in a wise man. They say it's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no one who can tell the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And this statement, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, gives you the theological assumption of the wise men that God does not dwell in the realm of men but this was not the assumption of Daniel or the Hebrews because through their experience they had known and only known a God who was willing to dwell amongst men we're told in Genesis 1 that, and, and, and 3 that God came and walked with Adam in the cool of the day we're told that he's always seeking to dwell amongst men and it finds ultimate consummation through Emmanuel. When God dwells amongst men and puts on the likeness of a man and became Jesus. And the word became flesh. And the outcome of this dialogue and conversation between the wise men and the king led in the king becoming very furious and angry. So furious and upset that he sent out a decree to gather all the wise men and kill them, slaughter them, and burn down their houses and kill their families. That's how serious he was to know the meaning of his dream. And as a result, Daniel and his friends were caught in a crossfire. And one of the chief of commanders was sent to find Daniel and his friends. Why was Nebuchadnezzar so willing to dispose of his wise men? Why was he willing to annihilate them all? Firstly, because of their inability to translate and interpret the dream. 
they were employed on a full-time basis to help him interpret dreams because this was the culture and mindset and theology of, of Eastern kings, ancient Eastern kings. Secondly, I mean, if, if, if you're employed to interpret dreams and you cannot interpret dreams, then they serve no purpose to him. So he was like, get rid of them all. Another reason is, Nebuchadnezzar had seen a vision of a huge statue, a man-like statue that was destroyed, and he could have associated that image with himself or his kingdom. And so he may have felt insecure about his kingdom and his position. And if you understand Babylonian history, you'll see that the next two kings that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar was assassinated. So you can imagine what the atmosphere was like in the courts of his empire for someone who was newly instated as king. It must have been a very insecure position. And so he must have been anxious about his position as king. And so he must have felt that the dream might have served as an omen for bad things to follow. And he must have even possibly suspected the wise men. And so he could have possibly looked at them as traitors. And so he said, kill them all. None of the Chaldeans, none of the wise men, none of the astrologers were able to help Nebuchadnezzar and wise men and Babylonians were famous for their astrology and dream interpretation. And God said in Isaiah 47, he challenged the wise men of Babylon. In Isaiah 47, he says, Why don't you deliver your nation from my power by your sorcery and your spells and your counsel from the stars? See, if you can rescue your nation out of my hands because destruction is coming. And so the practices, the soothsaying, the astrology and the potions of the wise men couldn't save them then. And it still cannot save today. You'll be surprised how many Christians think that astrology is harmless. And it originates from Babylon. The reading of stars is a form of divination. The Western world has popularized it through the zodiac signs. All traces back to Babylon. They'll tell you, you meet a girl these days, they'll tell you I'm a Virgo. <laughs> this is how I am, yeah? I'm, I'm a Leo. You know, I say, you messy. I'm a Scorpio, I'm a Libra. And this has become very westernized and popularized today, but it is a form of divination that the Babylonians first practiced. Why does this pose a risk to us? Because they won't save you. In times of difficulty, people have a tendency to interpret their lives through the zodiac signs. They become drawn to astrology in an attempt to learn more about themselves and nature and life. And also becomes a gateway that draws you into the supernatural and mystic world. And so Daniel comes before the king and he asks the king, can he go and seek the mercies of God? He's brought before the king and he says, please give me some time. Let me petition my God and come back with the interpretation for the dream. And what's interesting is that the king has issued out a decree to kill and execute all the wise men. This judgment was harsh. This judgment was merciless. And Daniel says, let me go seek the mercies of my God. Because our king 
operates quite differently to the way the kings operate in this land. The king has issued out a merciless judgment to slay all the wise men, but I have a God who's merciful. Can I go and call on his name? And so he, the first response of Daniel, he goes and he solicits the prayers of his friends. He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He seeks them out. They're also known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says, please pray with me and pray for the mercies of God. Do you have friends that can pray for you? Do you have friends that you can pray with? I know you've got friends you can party with, and drink with, and skinder with. But do you have friends that you can pray with? Those are the best kind of friends. That when all hell is broken loose, so when you trust in God for the impossible, you can say, brother, please pray for me. Daniel believed in the power of prayer, but he believed in the power of united prayer, of corporate prayer. He believed that when two or three are gathered in his name, there's more leverage. And he believed God answers by prayer. And that God makes a way by prayer. And so his first recourse was to pray. What's your first recourse when you encounter a problem, is your first response and reflex to pray. Daniel prayed. Abraham Lincoln stated, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. And my own wisdom seemed insufficient. When there's nowhere else to go and turn, turn to God. You can always turn to Him. Our prayers may be weak. Our attempts may seem feeble. We might not have the cliches. We might not have the form of prayer. But the power of our prayer does not lie in the intercessor. It lies in the one you pray to. He's the one that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. Daniel turns to prayer. He turns to his friends and solicits the prayers from his companions. He knew and understood he had a gift, a gift to interpret dreams. But he still needed prayer. Because your gifts function and operate through prayer. His gift became operational through prayer and his gift did not operate in isolation. He demonstrated his need for his companions in order to operate in his gift. And the moment they pray, Daniel has a dream and the dream is the exact interpretation and the exact dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And what's Daniel's response? He turns to God, he pours out his heart to God in a prayer of thanksgiving and he praises him. I want you to look at his prayer because this prayer is the theological sense of the chapter. And listen to how he prays in chapter 2, verse 20. <coughs> Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have, understa who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what I've asked you for. You have made known to me the king's demand. Let's look again at how he prays. He said, Blessed be the God, that the name of God forever and ever, 
for his wisdom and his might are his and he changes he removes he gives he reveals he knows he's given me wisdom he has made known to us the king's demand him he his because it's always and ever been about him he could have easily taken the credit and say but this gift i have no this gift serves for the sole purpose of his glory Paul put it this way, he says, why do you boast about what you have when what you have you've received? You wouldn't have had what you had if it was not given to you from above. So why walk around like it was all you? Like it was your brain and your money and your skill and your talents when he gave it to you? It's another thing if you produced or manufactured it out of your own ingenuity. But the very skills you boast about, the very things we, we feel proud about, that make us feel macho, we would not have had unless he opened up his hand. And Daniel says to Nicodemus, the very throne and empire you rule over, you rule over because he's the God of the heavens. And he gave you this kingdom. A heathen king. He says, I've given you this kingdom. Because no authority is given to man except comes from above. Not even the ANC in power is there because God did not allow it. Amen. Yes, we, we put him there. <laughs> but he allowed it. Amen. By his sovereign rule and power, they are in position. And Daniel makes this known to, to Nebuchadnezzar. But he takes his gift and he turns it back to give God glory. He did not presume upon his gift. But he operated his gift through prayer. And when God answered his prayer, he came back to give him glory. He was like one of those lepers. You know? When God does something for you and gives you what you've been praying for, do you come back? To say thank you you come back to say lord i give you the glory daniel and his friends were caught in the executioner's dragnet their lives were hanging in the balance god answered their prayers and they come back and they say lord i know i got the dream i got the interpretation but it's only because of what you've done Amen. some of you when god promotes you we don't see you anymore <laughs> when God blesses you and, and, and now you have a, a, what they call it an additional other and you're in love you go missing and you get married and you go missing <laughs> you have kids you go missing and God's like but I've blessed you with what you have yeah. come back say thank you and so Daniel recounts to the king his dream and says you O king in verse 31 were watching and behold a great image this image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome this image's head was of gold its chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze its legs of iron its feet partly with iron and of clay and you watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of clay and iron and broke it into pieces and the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together like powder and became like chaff, chaff uh, uh, from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that there was no trace of these kingdoms and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth and the whole earth was full with the glory of the Lord there are four features about this image firstly the image is a compound the image is a compound made of various substances, made of gold, made of silver, made of bronze, iron, and clay. It's a mixed up and conglomerate of powers and rulership. The image is also colossal. It's enormous. It's awesome. It's huge. It's the biggest image that came to his mind in his dream. 
the biggest image that filled the king's imagination. This image is also imperial, it's governmental, it speaks of kingdoms. And Daniel goes on later to describe to us that these substances, that this colossal image actually represents four kingdoms. It represents the kingdom of Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, and Rome. These kingdoms represent the kingdoms that would wield the scepter of power that were to succeed the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. This image was also in human form. It was a figure in human form. It had a head, it had a breast, arms, legs, feet, and a human frame. This was an image that represented something human. And these kingdoms would represent the kingdoms of humans, of, of the earth, kingdoms of men. Another feature to this image is that this image was tottering, it was unstable and faltering because the image is standing on feet that's made partially of clay and partially of iron. And the rock that's cut out from the mountain comes and destroys and breaks the unstable, tottering image until the entire image becomes like dust. This image and these substances also represents the progressive deterioration of the arrangement of the metals. First the gold, first the silver, then the brass, then came the iron. First the gold, then the silver, brass and iron. These metals decreased in value. Gold, silver, brass and iron. And as they decreased in value, they increased in strength. Because silver is stronger than gold, and brass stronger than silver, and iron stronger than brass, silver, and gold. So as their value deteriorated, they became stronger. And the fulfillment of this is seen in the nations that succeed Babylon. Babylon, it's important to know that when Daniel interpreted the dream of the gold, the head of gold, he said, Nicodemus, you are the head of gold. He didn't say Babylon is the head of gold. He said, you are the head of gold because Babylon was an absolute monarch. Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He had all the power. He was above the law. He decided the, the, the law. Wherever he went, the kingdoms went. Yeah. He had all the power represented of the kingdom. And so Daniel comes and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But the, but the silver of the arms represent the Medo-Persians. And their governance and their power wasn't fully invested in the king that was spread out amongst their political leaders even though a king held an office so they became less of a monarch and then when you get to Greece Greece was even less of a monarch, the king wasn't above the, the law or his laws when we get to Rome we see that Rome is an imperialist and they did not demonstrate the power of an absolute monarchy and so they decreased in value because the kings had less of control and power over the laws but they also decreased in value because as the kingdoms progress the kingdoms degenerate morally with each kingdom until we get to Rome and the nations are totally debauched. And that would be the empire that would be the seat of power when Christ would be crucified. But as the kingdoms deteriorate, each kingdom represents a stronger force. Because it was the Medo-Persians that conquered the Babylonians. 
and it was the Greece Empire led by Alexander the Great that conquered the Persians in a ruthless series of, of wars and battles they would conquer the Persians at the battles of Corinth and then it would be Rome who would come with all its might and force and defeat the mighty Greece army and so we saw the Babylonian kingdom, they ruled for 66 years. The Medo-Persians ruled for 208 years. The Grecian Empire ruled for 185 years. And the Roman Empire ruled for over 500 years. Each kingdom became stronger in military might and power. And then Daniel says, in chapter 8, he gives us the breakdown of chapter 2. He says, a male goat with a large horn between his eyes would suddenly arise from the west and smash the horns of the ram, which represented Alexander the Great who would defeat the Persian uh, Empire. History records of how Alexander the Great had the agility of a goat and how he crossed over Helenspot having conquered Greece earlier they began to march and revenge Greece and inflicted damage to the Persian Empire and it's recorded that there at the plains of Isis that Alexander the Great had slaughtered the Persian army and they proceeded southwards and city after city the Persian empires and cities didn't even give up a fight and after the Greek Empire a fourth empire arose that was more brutal this was the Roman Empire and they would obliterate every kingdom and make them a point of their power it was there Carthage that the Romans destroyed the Greeks in 146 years before Christ was born. They defeated the Greeks at the peninsula of Corinth and they did what no other empire did before them. Every other empire would conquer a nation and solicit tax from them. But Rome was ruthless. Rome would totally annihilate you and overpower you and not even be concerned about the taxes and so Daniel says and in those days these kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and they shall and it shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another people and this kingdom will destroy the kingdoms of brass and gold and clay and silver and iron and he says the God of the heavens has made this known to the king 600 years before Christ comes Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream that will cross over 2,000 years span which would fulfill Jesus prophecy in Luke 21 which spoke about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled while these four kingdoms Gentile kingdoms would dominate the earth the dream told us about a fifth kingdom and there's few things you should know about the fifth kingdom that the fifth kingdom is the kingdom of God that the kingdom is represented as a throne that's cut out from a mountain but without hands implying to us that this kingdom has no human interference no human origin and this stone can be interpreted to also refer to Jesus because he's referred to the rock of ages the chief cornerstone that many have rejected and in this dream the rock starts out as a little piece of rock and then grows to becoming a mountain speaking to the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God grows and develops over time
until it fills the whole earth and the whole earth is filled and covered with the glory of God. It's a kingdom that works over time. And it's a kingdom that will ultimately destroy every other kingdom of this world. Until the day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ and his God. Friends and family, we are privileged to be part of that kingdom. Jesus said we enter this kingdom by being born again. That's how you enter into the kingdom of God. And this kingdom, Jesus said, is not like the kingdoms of this world. He said, had it been like the kingdoms of this world, I would have dominated by force. I have legions of angels. But his kingdom does not operate on the premise of force and power, but it's a kingdom that operates righteousness, peace and joy. And we are part of that kingdom. And so next week, Grenville will go into detail to chapter 7. If he's here. <laughs> and he will unravel the details of the prophecy and three. Amen. Amen. Okay. Can we all stand this time?